you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 6. We're going to continue on in our over a year long study, verse by verse, chunk by chunk, through this gospel account. And so if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. You can use the Pew Bible there in front of you or you however you like to access it on your phone. We'll be in the New Testament, so we're in the gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you get to Acts, you've gone too far. Look for the big number 6 at the top, that's the chapter we're going to be in, and then look for the little verse, 37, which is where we're going to start this morning, and we're going to read verses 37 to 59. Again, if you do not have a Bible of your own, we've got some blue ones on the, uh, out here in the narthex on the table. Please feel free to grab one of those, write your name in it, and take it with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, but whatever version you have there in front of you is great. As you're turning there, John chapter 6, 37 to 59, I want to ask you a question. What comes to mind when I ask, does pineapple belong on pizza? What comes to mind when I say that? It's kind of this age-old debate that there doesn't seem to be any middle ground on it. You know, does fruit belong on pizza? That's kind of the age-old debate. You either 100% love it or you 100% hate it. And typically you're willing to fight about it either way. I would be in the no, it doesn't belong on pizza camp in case you're wondering. I enjoy asking questions like this as like icebreakers in groups because usually when I ask that question, the next question or the thing that I ask you to do is to defend your answer. So does fruit belong on pizza? Yes or no? Now defend it in your group. Because typically what happens when we ask questions like this and I say defend your answer, what typically happens is something that we know as the double down. You double down on it. Defined, a double down is to strengthen one's commitment to a particular strategy or course of action, typically one that is risky. And we can definitely see that in a debate over whether fruit belongs on pizza. It can be a risky move to stick your neck out there. You'll often, you'll often find stories in the news about someone or saying or maybe posting something online that might be edgy or inflammatory or just uncomfortably true. And then when they're called out on it in the public square, typically what happens is they'll double down on it. They'll double down on their statement. They won't back off. They won't apologize for it. They'll basically say, I said what I said. Friends or fans of The Office will know Stanley once, once said, did I stutter? That's the double down. No, I, I said what I said. I meant what I said. And last week, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus linked himself with the Exodus account. Remember, the whole Old Testament says someone is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts that we're in right now, say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. So Jesus is linking himself with the Exodus account, and he's saying all of that points forward to me. I'm the promised Messiah. I'm the one who's here. He said that he is the true bread from heaven. And Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and the Jewish religious leaders went absolutely ballistic. As we have seen throughout this gospel account, you see this tension that keeps rising between Jesus and the Pharisees. It just never goes away. It just kind of keeps building and, and strengthening as we go through. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and the Jewish religious leaders went ballistic, and they called him a blasphemer. 
Never mind that Jesus actually proved that he is the Son of God by performing multiple public miracles to authenticate his message. But still, as we read about in John 5, verse 18, that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because of these ongoing claims of divinity. And now we're in the middle of what's called the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is speaking to the crowd that followed him across the Sea of Galilee. And at the end of this passage that we're going to read this morning in verse 59, we see Jesus was speaking in a synagogue in Capernaum. This is the backyard of the Pharisees who wanted to kill him. And I want you to remember and be reminded of the fact that the arc of this gospel account, we are slowly but surely marching our way towards the cross. And Jesus knew it the whole time. So as this tension rises, we are marching ever slowly but surely towards the cross. And as we read this text in a moment, I want you to feel that tension that's rising between Jesus and the Jewish leadership as he basically doubles down on his claim that he is the Son of God. Jesus also doubles down on something else in this passage. He doubles down on how salvation works. Now there have been similar fruit-on-pizza type reactions to what Jesus says in these verses throughout the history of the Christian church. And the reactions have been a stark contrast between grumbling and gratitude. And as we read this passage today, I want you to remember that this is Jesus himself speaking. And so we need to pay close attention to his claims and his explanation. So with that in mind, let's go to the Word. John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, and we will read to verse 59. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Jesus said to them, oops, sorry, I started at verse 35. Okay, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The grass withers, 
And the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Let's pray. Father, we do look to your word. And Father, we ask and pray, as we have already confessed, Lord, that we come each and every week because we're forgetful people to have reality re-described to us. And we are grateful for your word, that it reminds us again of who you are and who we are and how we are to live and walk in this world. And so, Father, we long to glorify you. We ask and pray that by your Spirit you would change us and convict us, O Lord, as we sit at your feet. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you would be with us. Amen. All right, back. Let me tell you a story about a guy, uh, something that happened back in the early 2000s. Back in the early 2000s, a young man entered a Mexican restaurant in a small college town after being confronted with the truth claims of the Bible that he had heard in a small group. And as he sat at the table waiting for his lunch to arrive, he kind of grumbled against what he had just heard, and he kind of frantically searched the scriptures looking for the knockout punch, this thing that would refute what he just heard. He was looking for this knockout punch, and he was so sure that he was going to be able to find it, and he went looking for that. And as he was looking for that knockout punch, the Holy Spirit flipped the light switch on, and he went from grumbling to gratitude in an instant. The reason I know the details of this story is because that young man was me. I was the one in the Mexican restaurant. I was the one who was looking to refute this claim that I had just heard and had explained to me in the scriptures. We're going to get to that truth claim here in just a minute. Hang with me. And as we look at this text this morning, I want to ask one big question. How do you respond to the message of the true bread of life? Remember last week, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. One of these several I am statements that we'll see from this point forward in the Gospel of John. So as Jesus claims, I am the bread of life, the big question that I want you to ask and wrestle with this morning is, how do you respond to the message of the true bread of life? We're going to see that there's basically two responses, grumbling or gratitude. And I want you to keep these two in your head as we move forward. Okay, we're not going to have points this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're just going to kind of go through the text and apply as we go. So let's start off. Look at verse 38, where Jesus claims to be sent by the Father from heaven. And I want you to notice how the religious leaders, again, miss the Messiah that's right in front of them. Over and over and over again, we see this. In verse 41, he says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And then they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say he came down from heaven? And they start grumbling quietly amongst themselves. The word that's used there for grumble is kind of this low murmur. Later on in verse 52, it says that they were um, basically fussing at each other. So the Greek word there is a louder kind of shouting at each other. So we go from grumbling to just kind of out and out fussing and complaining and arguing with each other. And they basically say, we know that his mom and dad, how can he say he came from heaven? Remember in John 4, 4, Jesus talked about a prophet having no honor in his hometown. And it's interesting to me as we read this gospel account over and over ago, isn't it interesting how the quote-unquote church folks in the gospel accounts are consistently the most resistant to Jesus' clear teachings about who he is and what he came to do? It's interesting how the church folk, the religious folks, or the ones that Jesus is explaining himself to, they are the most resistant. And Jesus also claimed to be sent to do his heavenly Father's will. And so we ask the question, well, what is the will of the Father who sent His Son? Look at verse 39 and 40. 
Verse 39 reads, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus says, I'm, My Father sent me, and he sent me to do his will, and this is his will. But then we have to ask the question, well, what is the all that he has given me there in that passage? It's verse 40 tells us that. It's everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. They're granted eternal life and the hope of resurrection in the last day. It's a great promise to hang on to. In our shorter catechism, we'll get to this in a few weeks, question 38 asks the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And so on this, and I will raise them up on the last day, what are the promises associated with that? Here's how the catechism answers. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God through all eternity. What, a, what amazing promises. They will be openly acknowledged in the day of judgment. You are mine. And they will be ushered into the presence of God to the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. It's kind of like a return to your heart's rest. The thing that you were made to do, you will one day have. It's a, it's a great promise that we, we think about. It kind of get, get, I don't know about you, it gets me up and going in the morning sometimes when I don't want to. And look at verses 37 and 39 where Christ speaks about a particular definite group of people that have been given to him. He says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. What this implies is they can be counted. I can lose nothing. If it's kind of this open-ended thing, how do you know? It's like having a thousand-piece puzzle. You know if a piece is missing, don't you? Because you know there's a thousand pieces there. Many of you who have done thousand-piece puzzles know that those puzzles or those pieces have been lost and are probably hiding under the couch. But you feel that, you know that there's one that's missing. And so look at, when we think about Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, it speaks of names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and this book cannot be altered. What we're talking about is a very particular, definite redemption. And so we ask the question then, well, how are these people able to look upon the Son and believe? And so he says, what is the will of my Father who sent me? It's to, it's, to re, it's to reclaim and to gather each and every one of these. Not a one of them will be, will be lost. All that look upon the Son, believe in Him, as verse 40 tells us. When we ask, well, how are those people able to look upon the Son and live? John 6, 44. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. On the last day. Now here's what the Greek literally reads when you look at this, when you look at this text. The, the Greek verse literally reads, No one has the ability or capacity to come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's literally what the Greek verse reads. No one has the ability or capacity to come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Okay, here's what a smart guy said about this verse, R.C. Sproul. It says, this statement is a universal negative proposition. It states a universal inability. The word uh, can and does not describe permission, but power or ability. To say no one can do something is to say that they're unable to do it. The stark truth expressed by Jesus is that no person has the ability to come to Christ on his or her own. For a person to be able to come to Christ, it must first be granted or given to that person to come to Christ. 
God must do something for us to overcome our something for us to overcome our moral inability to come to Christ. We cannot embrace Christ in the flesh without the aid of the Holy Spirit. We cannot come to Christ. And so you remember me sitting in that Mexican restaurant wrestling? I remember what I had. I had a, 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 a lunch, Speedy Gonzalez with beans. And I was sitting right there in El Jalisco in Clinton, South Carolina, my junior year, wrestling with this. And you know that truth claim that I was just wrestling with because I hated it. And I was looking for the knockout punch. The truth claim that I was wrestling with is sovereign election. That is what I was wrestling with. I hated it. And I remember wrestling with the text and looking for this knockout punch. And as we think about these words, many people around here in this particular area spit on the ground when they hear these words. But even the 1611 King James Version uses these words. And so we need to deal with them, not ignore them. That's one of the things that I appreciate. I didn't grow up in a Reformed church. I didn't grow up in a, in a Presbyterian church. And the thing I appreciated about Reformed preaching the first time I heard it was that this guy just hit, hit it head on and explained it. He didn't shy away from it. And so, with great fear and trembling, here I come before you. We've got a few pastors in the room and y'all are all bracing for impact. But as we think about this text this morning, it's one thing to assign error to Paul. Say, oh, that's just Paul. It's one thing to assign error to Paul in Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 8 and 9, but it's an entirely different thing when Jesus himself talks about it. And we need to remember that God is not ashamed of these passages, and neither should we be ashamed of them. In many ways, it is the glorious truths of the gospel that we want to move from back in the storeroom and put on the front porch, because it's the best news that we could ever hear. They revealed the, the very heart of the true gospel. And for me, I had already admitted in that Mexican restaurant, I don't like this. I don't like this. But the real question was, even though I didn't like it, the bigger question was, does the Bible teach it? And I had to admit that, yes, it does, from cover to cover. I couldn't get away from it. I was looking for it. Now, before some of you start throwing eggs... Let me remind you again, please know I hated this and I grumbled against it for years until, until I saw it as the absolute picture of grace and it changed my life and the light switch went on and I went, oh, God really is that gracious to a messed up person like me. It's really true that if I did not affirm this, then man, I'm without hope. I just remember wrestling with that, and from that point forward, I doubled down on it. That's why I'm here as a PCA guy. I doubled down on it because it became my source of hope and assurance, because it hid me behind the glorious cross of Christ. Because finally, I'm like, oh, I have nothing to do with it. Praise be to Christ. Once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Some of you may have had the similar experience. I started noticing it everywhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I couldn't get away from it. And so we look at verse 44. We've got to ask the question, what does it mean? Why would Jesus say something like this? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. That the Father draws everyone indiscriminately and it's fully up to them to decide. Now we ask the question, do we have a will? Of course we do. Do we have desires? Of course we have desires. 
We do have a natural ability to choose what we desire, but the source of the problem is clear. We do not desire Christ. We desire sin and wickedness. We love our sin and we want to stay in it. We love to be our own little lowercase g, gods of our own lives. That's what we desire. That is our heart's inclination apart from Christ. It's not the fact that the problem is our want to is broken. Our want to is enslaved to sin. We want sin. The Greek word dunamai used here, no one has the ability to come to me is very clear. It speaks to a universal moral inability because our wills are in total bondage to sin from birth. Romans 5, 12 to 21. And we think about this though. The whole heated fruit on the pizza type debate that happens over these words hinges on this one question. Does fallen man in and of himself have a natural desire for Christ? Does fallen man in and of himself have a natural desire for Christ? That's what the whole debate hinges on. And the answer to the question, the whole of Scripture, Old and the New Testament, answers with a resounding no, we do not. Don't believe me? Let's look to the Word. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. John chapter 3, verse 3, remember when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. We talked about this weeks and weeks ago. Jesus answered him, answering Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And remember, we talked about the fact that in the order of salvation, regeneration always precedes faith. God has to work and give us a new heart. Because our want to and our desires are only inclined towards sin and wickedness. And so we need a new heart. And we're thankful that by God's grace, He's given us that. So if we are incapable of coming to God on our own, the big, large question is, how is anyone saved? Isn't that the big question? So if we're incapable of coming to God on our own, as John 6, tells us, how's anyone saved? I've got good news to you. God comes to us out of sheer grace and mercy and drags us to Himself. From spiritual death to spiritual life. Remember those rusty cars I've talked about a hundred times in this passage? On the way up to Henniger, 85, as you're going up, they're in the woods, rusting in the woods. That's us. We are the valley of dry bones. We are the dead, dusty bones laying there. We are the ones who are dead in our trespasses and sins. If you want to know where you fit in to the whole salvation equation, there you are. That's where you are. I had to wrestle with this. Remember, we've, this, this Jonathan Edwards quote, again, just keeps nailing me. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. <sighs> you talk about a fastball over the middle. What do we contribute to the whole salvation equation? Nothing except the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we bring to the table. That's all we got. The thing that we do is we give ourselves way too much credit. And by doing that, we rob Christ of His glory. We rob Christ of all that He has done. 
we say, well, Jesus, you did, I did most of the work and then you just kind of topped me off. That is absolutely unbiblical. Christ has done it all. And when we look and we see at all that he has done, think about the words that you have sung already. Go back and look at the songs they were picked there like that on purpose. Reminding of us, us of our sin and our brokenness and our utter incapacity to be able to choose Christ on our own. But thanks be to God that he has worked in our hearts drawing us to himself. It's the good news of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 and 6. Still don't believe me? That's okay. Ephesians 2, 1, and 6, 1 through 6. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. Oh, but that passage isn't done, is it? Because you have this universal indictment on sinful humanity, but yet, here are the, here are the best two words you can hear. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace you are saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. This is a picture of sovereign electing, regenerating grace that is monergistic. It comes from God alone. It is not synergistic. It is the work of God's Spirit alone, not a cooperative effort based on your own effort. Remember, you're the rusty dead car in the woods. That's where I was. That's where you were. And God comes on the scene, but God being rich in mercy says, I am going to reclaim and restore that car, and I'm going to bring it back to life. It's amazing when you think about that. The Father didn't send Jesus to make good people better. Jesus came to make dead people live. And the gospel message is never going to make sense to you. It's never going to warm your heart until that gets in there. It's never going to make sense to you. It's never going to humble you to the dust until you see that. Jesus did not come to make good people better. Jesus came to make dead people live. And I know texts like this and thinking like this, it makes me go, oh, I have to actually preach that. Yes, and I long to. It's the best news ever. So I get up in the morning to remind you of the truth of the gospel, even if you don't like it. It doesn't matter whether you don't like it or not. just matter, does the Bible teach it? It's the same wrestling I had in the Mexican restaurant. It didn't matter whether I didn't like it or not. The question was, did the Bible teach it? And I couldn't shy away from the fact that, yes, it did. And when you think about this gospel message and how it really lands, so many of you grew up having someone just hammer you with rules every Sunday, and you felt guilty because you could never keep them, and you wondered if God's love was actually real, and if you could ever be good enough for God to save you, because it was all up to you. Essentially, this is what you were singing. Cooperative grace, how sweet the sound, that helped a pretty good person like me save myself. I once was kind of confused, but now I figured it out. I was blind, but I taught myself to see. Until I mess up again and doubt my salvation for the millionth time because it's all my fault for not doing it right. We focus so much on the how we come that we miss the miracle that 
anyone would come to Jesus. Anyone at all. Including those of us who cling to Christ now as our Lord and Savior. The very fact, this is the thing, there was the light switch that came on for me. The fact that even one person would be rescued and redeemed is the absolute picture of divine mercy. The very fact that a holy, holy, holy God would let one person in who had sinned, born dead in their sin, the fact that he would let one in is an absolute picture of grace. Now, think about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember, Old Testament and New Testament packaged together. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham where he said, I will make you the father of many nations, and it will be as big as the stars are in the sky. The family of God is going to be numerous, huge, uncountable to our eyes, but countable to God's eyes. That number is huge, but it's fixed. And remember, the, book of, the Lamb's Book of Life was written before creation, and it cannot be altered. Now, we might still object like I did in the Mexican restaurant and say, that's not fair. That's what I said. That's not fair. Here's another quote that's like a shot over the bow to me. Mark Dever said, do not charge with God with injustice unless you know what he knows. Do not charge God with injustice unless you know what he knows. You want to know what is fair? This is what came, this is the light switch. Do you know what is fair? God letting us all willingly throw ourselves into a justly deserved hell because of our sin and rebellion, because that's what we truly desire. That's what's actually fair. You know what grace is? You want to know how the gospel comes in in the midst of that? God the Father sending His one and only sinless Son into the world to take our sin upon Himself, die the death that we justly deserved, endure the full wrath of God as He descended into hell, and rising victorious over death and hell to secure an eternal salvation for his elect, whom he will save, preserve, and keep until the very end. And we say, it is all of you, God. You did it all. It's all for you. Look at verse 37 again. This is what makes the gospel bell ring loud and long and clear as we think about this bell. Boom! Ringing and echoing over our valley. What makes the gospel bell ring loud and clear? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You are mine forever. Suddenly you're able to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, dead in my trespasses and sins, but now am found, was blind, actually dead, but now I see. Don't you see how it changes everything? Suddenly it is amazing grace when you really couch it in terms of the biblical narrative. And think about the assurance that this brings. If you have any genuine heart desire and affection for Christ, it shows that God has drawn you, dragged you to himself, and that his spirit is working. Your spiritual life may ebb and flow like the tides. Am I the only one? Your spiritual life might ebb and flow like the tides. But yet, God is faithful to His covenant promises and His covenant people. He is unchanging and God is always at work. Want some good news? Philippians 1.6 If you think about your spiritual life and how it ebbs and flows, and ugh, some days I just feel like the worst. 
Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a promise worth sinking your teeth into. That he who began a good work in you will carry that work. He will complete it in you because he's at work in your heart. I have to believe that on those days when my spiritual life feels like it's in the toilet and I want to quit and I'm thinking like, who in the world am I to pastor a church? I am the worst. I have to trust Christ and all that he has done. Here's the thing. Once this gets into your bones, once that gospel gets into your bones, it becomes your only hope. And just like me, the biblical words that you used to hate and grumble against, suddenly you see them as your life raft that is carrying you to Jesus. You rest in it. And you realize that the flow of God's work, that river is carrying you to Jesus because you're safe in him. I can't make you believe it. Oh, I feel that. <laughs> All I can simply do is put the bread of life in front of you and call to respond to what Christ clearly says about himself. You can't get away from it. This is why the sovereign election actually propels us in our evangelism. We think, oh, the Presbyterians, they're just the frozen chosen. They don't like to share the gospel with anybody. Okay? How does this actually propel us in our evangelism? It propels us because we cast the seed of the gospel far and wide to anyone who will listen. And thank God for the privilege of being able to tell a, figure, a, a fellow beggar where we found the bread of life. And we trust him for the harvest according to his sovereign will and thank him that he ever extended his grace to us. I felt this when I went onto a college campus in a state I had never been to before, on a campus in a city I had never been to before, and I knew that God called me. I'm like, there's 5,000 students here. Where do I start? But you know what gave me hope? Lord, you called me here and my job is to just start casting the seed. Just start throwing the gospel seed out. And I'm going to trust you for the harvest. That it's not up to me. It's not up to me to cause the growth. It's up to me to be faithful to cast the message far and wide and pray that you would unstop some ears and change some hearts. And you think about if you were a missionary going into a closed country, the confidence that that gives you. Because what it means is that God has called you there, and what that means is His elect are there. And it's your job to go be faithful and to sow the seed and to trust Christ in all that He's done. And you walk on there and go, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but you can. And I'm going to trust you. Think about the confidence that that gives us, especially when you're trying to figure out, should I go talk to my neighbor or not? And what should I say? And what if I mess it up? Guess what? God can use you. He can use you. Broken and fumbling and messed up. And I can't remember the verses quite right. That's all right. God can use you. Trust him. We'll never be called the frozen chosen again if we were to actually trust in the power of the gospel and step out with courage and conviction under the banner of Christ's love and under his sovereignty. Here's what James Hamilton Jr. said as we come to the end. He said, Jesus uses this text to bolster his claims that all those whom the Father gives him will come to him. Verse 37. That none of those given to Jesus by the Father will be lost. Verse 39. That they will all believe. Verse 40. And that the Father will draw them all to Jesus. Verse 44. Because the Father will teach them all and they will therefore all go to Jesus. Verse 47. We are called to trust and believe all that Christ has said about himself and cast ourselves fully upon him and thank him for what he has eternally secured for his people by his blood. Here's the good news of the gospel. 
It is finished. And not a drop of Christ's blood was spilled in vain. Every bit of it was effectual to secure the redemption of God's people. It actually accomplished something. Didn't just open up the door for it. Actually did something. Secured for us an undying hope that despite my sin and brokenness, He is with me every day until the very end. It's the amazing thing about the gospel. Now, what sign does Christ give us to prove to us that He really is the Messiah and the true Redeemer of God's elect? Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And that bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Skip down to verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him, and I abides in me, and I in him. And we'll see next week, even the, the disciples that are with him are like, What are you talking about, Jesus? We don't really understand this. And he says, Well, and some some walked away after he taught this. But they say, Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? We want to stay with you. The big question that I want to ask this morning, we talked about this earlier, is how do you respond to the bread of life this morning? With grumbling? Like I did in the Mexican restaurant? Or with gratitude? The way I did walking out of the Mexican restaurant. Saying, oh Lord, if that's true, it's my only hope. If you're here and struggling with it, let's get together and have a cup of coffee and talk about it. But when it moves from grumbling to gratitude and you start seeing that as, that is my only hope that I was that dead rusty car in the woods that God set His love upon me and He dragged me home like a rusty car. Dragged me home and fixed me up just because He loves me. When you see that for the first time, it changes absolutely everything because it gets in your bones and you say, Lord... Who am I? Who am I that you would ever set your love upon me? And it just humbles us to the dust. I usually close with an illustration, but I don't have any better illustration than the one that's sitting right there before you. And that's the table. And so let's come to the Lord's table this morning. As Jesus said, if you eat the bread of life, and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. This is the best illustration I can give you that Christ is who He says He is, that He is the bread of life, and that He has come to rescue and redeem broken, sinful people like us. And so as we come to the table this morning, the Lord knows that our hearts get rusty, and we need to be reminded of Christ's return. I don't know if you're forgetful like me. <laughs> if you are, join the club. And we forget that Christ is faithful. We forget that He's going to return, that He's promised to do that. And we need to remember His grace and mercy. And so he's given us this physical reminder. This is a good gift given to us by a loving God. And the thing you need to know is this is not a table set for perfect people. There is not one in this room, myself included. This is not a table set for perfect people. But it is for those who see their sin and their need for grace. And it's for Christians who look to Jesus, who look to the bread of life in faith, trusting in what he has done. The good thing about this also is that if you're here and you're not a member of a PCA church, welcome. It's the Lord's table, not the PCA's table. And so if you are a member in good standing of any evangelical church that preaches the true gospel of Christ, and what we mean by that is that you're sinful, 
Jesus is your only Savior, and without His grace and without His mercy, you cannot be saved. Just bare-bones Apostles' Creed kind of stuff. If that's what your church preaches and that is what you believe, then come to the table, please, and join us. But if you are not a Christian, if you do, cannot confess that, feel no pressure to participate, nobody's taking notes up there or anything, just let the elements pass. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves and to be discerning of Christ's sacrifice and of His body and blood. Christ calls us to come and feed on Him and find grace through Him. This bread and this cup, they're signs and seals of the covenant of grace. We don't believe that the bread changes into anything else, that the juice changes into anything else, nor that my words as a minister really accomplish anything. What we're doing is they're signs and seals of God's covenant faithfulness. This is a covenant meal placed before you, and we're called to respond. Now at Grace Prez, after a year off, we're going to pass the elements separately while remaining seated, and we'll take them together one at a time. So we'll all take the bread together, and then we'll pass the, the juice out, and then we'll all take those together. There's also some prepackaged elements in the bread trays if you would prefer to still use one of those, or if you're gluten-free, the wafer is gluten-free. And so just know that that's there. There should be about five or six. If we run out, we will definitely go get you one. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he, he broke it and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And so that's what we do. Trusting in Christ being faithful to what he asked us to do until he returns, which is to set the table before you and to call, call you to come as God's people and to be reminded to taste and see and to touch the gospel set before you, a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. And so for those of you this morning who trust in Christ as your only hope and as your Savior, I've got some good news for you. This table of grace is set for you, set before you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And we pray, O oh Lord, that by your Spirit you would grant us access to the throne of grace. And we pray that you would set apart these humble elements for a holy use. Show us your grace and seal it into our hearts and remind us of your faithfulness to us even when we are faithless. Father, we ask and pray that you would strengthen our weak knees this morning and help us to remember and proclaim that Christ has died, Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. These things we ask humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.